Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today, we're going to start by talking about Warren Buffett slash Berkshire's annual letter. And then we'll move on to a study that shows leaks in corporate deals might lead to higher takeover offers. Uh, so, Chris, Warren Buffett, his letter came out this weekend. It is uh, much anticipated every year. I think there are a lot of people who wake up and immediately read it Saturday mornings. Uh, you know, I think we kind of felt we had to do one today because obviously our interests, his interests, our listeners' interests overlap. Uh, he covered a lot of ground in this letter. One of the things I think he kind of made clear in this letter and all the interviews he gave this morning is that he really wants to put more capital to work. He is looking to do deals. He didn't use the elephant gun term again this year like he has in the past, but he's got capital. He's ready to put it to work. But uh, aside from that, I, I'll just turn it over to you. I'm interested in your takeaways. I love elephant guns, literal and figurative. Uh, I think that uh, Buffett likes to invest. Uh, he's not worried about market levels. He's a bottom-up guy, and he is looking for opportunities. I think those opportunities um, won't be in the direction that looked like it could have been even as recently as a week or two ago, uh, coming out of the craft uh, offer for uh, Unilever. I think it could be kind of heading in a really different uh, direction. You know, it's interesting by the standard that Buffett really sticks with of understanding something that is uh, visible uh, you know, typically he uses the 10-year uh, time frame, which sounds like such a long time, but uh, 10 years of really being able to understand the business. Uh, but it's changed so much what that would be. I think that, uh, uh, that, that that's a different set of businesses than uh, would have made the cut uh, in years past. Yeah. So, you know, my, my personal takes when I was reading the letter is I was kind of reading and I was thinking, hey, is this really this year's letter or last year's? Like I started reading it and I was kind of like, oh, I feel like I've read this before, which I think kind of speaks to the consistency of Warren Buffett and his thinking. You know, you can read this year, you can read last year's, and he's hitting on the same points over and over again. So I didn't think there was that much new in it. One thing I really thought was uh, he came out really strongly in defense of stock buybacks, which I thought was uh, tremendously interesting that he thought he needed to put uh, – so, uh, some of his precious real estate there. And then I noticed some interesting things he said about the individual stocks in his portfolio. But I don't know if you want to comment on you know stock buybacks, kind of the similarities with last year's letter, or if you want to go to the stocks he discussed. You know, in terms of the similarities uh, with last year, I think that, uh, and this made me a little sad to think this almost, that the soaring kind of overarching tone, kind of hitting on some of the things that he has in the past, sounded kind of like a swan song like he he really had this big uh kind of almost ode to america and the american market system uh and and maybe he often sounds like this but i thought it was almost nostalgic you you know and this is dark and i wasn't <laughs> this kind of popped in my mind but recently he's been uh he's been talking a lot more about charity he's been making the rounds a lot more and he just sold his california beach home that i think mm -hmm. he's owned for like 40 or 50 years and somebody kind of said like Hey, when you look at that and you look at the these letters kind of are talking about longer term increments and everything, people were wondering if 
he's uh, if he's got some health news that the rest of us don't know about, which is a little dark, but I, you know it kind of does fit with that theme. Go ahead. Uh, you know, related to that, uh, he he was reflective. Uh, he talked about the bet that it looks like he's definitely going to win uh, between the S and P and a basket of funded funds. It also looks like the S and P will probably win that bet against Berkshire itself, uh, if that had been the bet. But um, but uh, I had made the offer to redo the bet with Rangely and and he he he, he turned it down but uh, sent a nice uh, handwritten note and um uh specifically kind of made light of you know well he's not going to be starting 10 year bets at this point yeah yeah uh and you know well there was a line in there i believe where he said uh i think it was with Google's chairman he, he had taken a bet and he kind of appreciated that he that the Google chairman thought Warren Buffett would be around in 10 or 15 years to to collect. Uh, You know, let's turn to the stock. So there were a couple of interesting things I I noticed in the stocks. Uh, He mentioned in the the stock section, he said, hey, not included in our common stock is this B of A preferred stock that comes with a lot of warrants. And he really applauded them for buying back shares and said he thought they did a great job buying back shares because their stocks were, their stock was undervalued. I thought that was very interesting because he very, very rarely comes out and says, hey, this stock is undervalued. Great job buying back stairs. That, that's about as bullish as I've heard him talking about a stock in public in a very long time. So I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if you want to yeah, say Yeah, no, anything. he's really kind of loosening up the uh, talk on individual companies, uh, Bank of America, uh, Apple, the airlines. Um, the two that kind of jumped out at me of being uh, – under uh, f- a focus compared to the past. And, you know, whenever I look at uh, preliminary proxies and 10Ks, the first thing that I do is I use the word function to overlap with prior mm-hmm. years. There's not an easy formatting way to do that in Berkshire letters, so I kind of just do it in my head. But in uh, the letter, I kind of look at things he talked about in the past. And uh, Wells Fargo and Amex, two of the things that uh, kind of have been faded a little bit recently. Yeah, that's actually right where I wanted to hit because okay. I don't think it's been mentioned a lot, but I, uh, this year he came out and he said, right underneath his equity portion, he said, hey, I just want to clarify something. Like, we've committed to never selling uh, an operating business that we own unless, like, the economics are so bad we kind of, our hand is forced. But we just want to be clear that while I don't have any plans to sell any of these stocks in the near t- for as long as the eye can see, I believe is his exact thing, we have not committed to holding on to these stocks forever, which I've never heard him say that before or clarify that. And my attention immediately turned to Coke, Wells Fargo, and American Express, because for as long as I can remember, he's called these guys in Gillette, which eventually became Procter & Gamble, which he sold. But for as long as I can remember, he's been calling these guys the inevitables. And he's been saying, I want to hold them forever and all this sort of stuff. So that was a, a drastic change in tone. And I couldn't help but thinking, look, Coke basically sells sugar water. Uh, Wells Fargo had that big customer scandal and their brand might have been damaged. And American Express faces a very uncertain future. Charlie Munger was absolutely bashing them at uh, Charlie Munger's Daily Journal meeting earlier this month. So I couldn't help but thinking if one of those is kind of on the chopping block of the three, I would think Amex has probably the worst future worst future outlook going forward. I would think that's most likely. Again, speculation, but it was a very markedly different tone than I remember him uh, having in years past. I agree 100%. Uh, Coke, Wells Fargo, and Amex. And we didn't coordinate this point. We've been thinking about this separately. But I, I, I listened to, watched uh, a video of, and read the transcript of the Daily Journal meeting. Uh, and coming out of that, if you reflect on Amex in 2027 and Apple in 2027, I think you can picture, and I 
think that Buffett can picture uh, the setting aside the technology, just the consumer product, uh, tangible Apple products being rolled over year to year. Uh, he says sticky, which is funny because my very young kids steal and make physically sticky all of my <laughs> Apple products at my house. Um, but it is so convenient, you know, um, uh, just one sentence tangent. I have the uh, use the uh, wireless earbuds and I was thinking, gee, I don't even really like them as much as some of the competitors, but I'm just already in the environment and people are going to keep rolling over Apple. You can value it on that basis as a consumer product company. I think you can see Apple in 2027 more clearly than I think I or he can see Amex in 2027. Well, if you think of Amex, like what is Amex? Amex is you pull out your card and you swipe and it gives access to a bank account. Amex is in some extent, in some ways, a middleman between your bank account and the restaurant that's getting paid, right? Yep. Uh, and when you think of an Apple Pay, and a lot of people pointed this out with an Apple Pay. Hey, right now, Apple Pay is just giving you access to your credit card. You don't have your credit card. It's digital. But at some point, why doesn't Apple Pay cut out the credit card? And Amex was a premium product. You know, there was that brand with Amex. There was that trust. And there was a little bit of you pulled out the Amex and your date saw you had an Amex and you look like a big shot. And if everyone's paying with their phone, Amex loses a little bit of that brand. You know, Chase Sapphire, a lot of these guys have really ramped up their rewards. I, I think Amex's moat is under siege on all aspects. So it kind of makes sense that it might be the most up for the chopping block. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to say anything else there? Or do, I've got one more thing I want to talk on about. On the letter? Um, or, or oh, wait, on, on the letter. I've got one more thing. If uh, Yeah, I, I have one last uh, thought, which is Mine was successor. successor. Successor, yeah. Um, you go first. You go first. Uh, that, uh, Buffett uh, is talking about his successor. Uh, can I quote very quickly just a sentence or yeah, two? Yeah, yeah. Or so, um, Ajit ensures risk that no one else has a desire or capital to take on. His operation combi combines capacity, speed, and decisiveness, and most important, brains in a manner unique in the insurance business, yet he never exposes Berkshire to risks that are inappropriate in relation to our resources. Ajit has created tens of billions of value for Berkshire shareholders. If there were ever to be another Ajit and you could swap me for him, don't hesitate, make the trade. Andrew, I think Buffett made the trade. Uh, so... I think a lot of people were thinking along your lines that this is the clearest indicator yet that Ajit is the uh, is his successor. He has been singing Ajit's praises for years and years and years. Here's my, my only counterpoint. So I, if you think back to Buffett's 2014 letter, which was the 50th anniversary, 2014-2015 was the 50th anniversary letter for Berkshire. And Charlie Munger actually had a blurb in it where he's Munger basically said, hey, Ajit or Greg Abel are two of the best managers in the world. And he basically said one of them is going to replace Buffett when mm -hmm. Buffett passes away. Uh, my only thought here is Ajit is 65. Greg Abel is, I believe, 54 or 55. If I kind of think successors, you know, we've talked on this podcast how 65 is a ridiculous retirement age, but I don't know if naming a 65, 66-year-old, you know, actually it might be 69 by the time he takes over for Buffett, and naming him as the CEO makes as much sense as a Greg Abel, who is 10 years younger and can kind of actually run Berkshire for another 9 or 10 years versus uh, Ajit. But I think clearly Buffett Spence is a kindred soul in Ajit, and I think he might be the, the favorite. He might be the, in the lead at this point. Transitions are rough, and so when you can pick much younger people 
it, it, it's wonderful to have fewer transitions kind of skip uh, skip one um, but uh, boy it's just I, I just I, the reason why I read that is it sounded so much like the verbiage yeah. of what would you want in a leader and, and and look if you think back to the darker health thing I thought like this was the highest praise we've heard him give though he has said to throw a jeet the life raft if it's between me Charlie and a jeet before we have heard him say that but mm-hmm. this was the highest praise it might really be setting up for the successor who knows I'm sure people will yell at me for infusing dark thoughts into this podcast want to turn to deal making I do alright so let's go to deal making slips lead to higher offer uh, so last week we talked about the Kraft Heinz deal mm-hmm. and we kind of said hey this seems like it leaked at a very early stage and we were saying this deal made all the sense in the world if it hadn't leaked this early I have to think that maybe a deal could have been reached uh, and we kind of wanted to follow up with that with a different study by Intralinks, which is a big uh, M&A data service, which they had a study that said, hey, uh, deal leaks are increasing. And when deals are leaked into the press and investors get wind of them, they actually there's actually evidence that it leads to higher premiums and more, more competing bids for a company. So I, I really thought that was interesting. And I, I just wanted to kind of wrap the podcast up with some thoughts on that. Sure. You know, um, I think it's nice to see a few news sources are still kicking, especially if you look at Reuters, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, recently the, the Washington Post. New York Times. <laughs> I would say, you know, they're getting some scoops. Uh, information is flowing. And uh, I, I want to be careful on how I say this, but I think leaks are a sign of a competitive marketplace in which both sides are sensitive to investor perception. That perception can be strategic to at least one side, and that side has journalists' phone numbers. Yeah, and look, I thought that one thing that really jumped out at me was they said leaks are most common in the real estate, yes. healthcare, and power deals. And I actually, that makes a lot of sense to me because if you think of real estate, healthcare, and power, those are places where you need to do kind of more uh, operational MA, more people get involved. And the more people that get involved, the more uh, opportunities there are for leaks. You know, mm-hmm. a secret if there's only one person who has it, it never gets broken. As soon as you give it away, it goes, likelihood of it get broken goes up exponentially and it also makes some sense to me that when things get in the press people get more committed to doing a deal uh they feel like deals are slipping away from them they're more pot committed it attracts more attention it can attract more competition it makes sense that it results in higher bids to me yeah i mean it can be a good deal it doesn't it dominates in certain circumstances in that it doesn't slow the announcement to completion time it does not hurt the completion rate and it can help in the big topics of drawing in other bidders and it can help in terms of the size of premium so i just wanted to engage in a little bit of uh, sector stereotyping and then ethnic stereotyping by saying that (laughs) first of all the real estate guys being really leaky that's just exactly what you'd think kind of real estate is kind of next door to finance and the kind of idea that they would let a lot of uh, i was surprised banking wasn't on the list oh you would think that that would be the most yes i was actually very surprised so i think that that would be really high and then uh for a little bit of uh, ethnic stereotyping which i thought i'd bring in uh germans having a zero (laughs) percent leak rate over the last couple years they're just so rule following you know they're just like i will not leak this information even if it is uh, and so literally just it's funny in a stat when you see 0.0 when yeah. all of these are down to basis points and some are higher and lower and up and down and they just have a flat zero percent leak rate is uh, i think germanic yeah it, uh 
I think that's great. You know, I, I was just, I am a little surprised that something getting in the press would result in both higher premiums and more deal offers in just one sense. You know, like there are these high paid helpers who are called bankers who are shopping the things. And if something getting leaked results in higher premiums and more bids, it suggests that bankers aren't doing the best jobs of shopping these things. And it really, it calls into question a little bit of what they're getting paid for because they do get paid a lot of money for they these things. They do. I like to think that there's a lot of coordination between us poor schmucks who own the stuff and our management teams and less coordination between the two management teams working on a deal. But in the certain circumstances, those two management teams have more interests aligned. You know, they can spend a lot of time on uh, comp. They can spend some time on office space or things like that, titles. Uh, and, uh, And I think that the leaks are when that, in my mind, pernicious coordination, I like the one being coordinated with, not the one being coordinated against, gets broken. I, I think it's a great point because, you know, if I'm trying to buy your company and all you're thinking about is what is my job in the combined company? What is my salary? What is my office space? If your shareholders don't know, you might be able to get away with that. But as soon as your shareholders find out, they're going to be raising hell if they find out you've got a bid and the reason the bid isn't going through is because you want the CFO title or the CEO title in the combined company, and you're passing up a big premium uh, because of that. Shareholders will not accept that once they find out. I'll give you last thoughts before we wrap it up if you have any. Um, I would just say if you want to keep a secret, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Perfect. Was that a threat, Chris? No. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Hey, that's all the time we have for today, guys. Uh, before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. Uh, Chris, disclosures, none for me that you know of. I'm keeping them a secret. <laughs> I, I, I will divulge the secret. I was going to get a long Berkshire tattoo and just show you. but uh, It's a podcast. It's Nobody a else podcast, can so it. they can't see it. So I will say verbally I'm long Berkshire. Hey, thanks for listening, guys. And we will talk to you later this week.